Heavenly Father, it is such a blessing to have another year before us in which we can study your word and hear your voice. Lord, we pray this morning, this first Sunday of the new year, we pray that you may be with us and help us to understand your word as we read it now. We pray that you may particularly be with me. Speak through me by your Holy Spirit. And may you build up the Christians in this room and any non-Christians who may be among us. May you convict them of their sin. And may this be the year that they turn to Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's always a major disappointment when someone you counted on for support is gone. I remember when I was doing my PhD in podiatry, my supervisor, halfway through my PhD, decided that he was actually going to move from Sydney to Melbourne for another job, and he was a major part of uh, supervising me. He was my primary supervisor, and so I was most distressed that he was leaving uh, because I think that PhDs often depend upon the supervisor. If you're going to get through a PhD, you need to really pick your supervisors and pick them well. And so it was a great disappointment when this person who I'd hoped to be there all the time that I was studying was then removed. And of course, these days it's not such a big deal because, of course, we have email, we have uh, technology with phones, uh, and so it wasn't that big a hindrance that I thought it would be, him going out of uh, my life and moving all the way to Melbourne. But we experience this from time to time. We have people that we hope uh, we have high hopes for, we depend upon them for many things, and it is a very big disappointment when those people or even things are removed from our lives. And we're now coming back to a series in Isaiah. Uh, last year we got up to Isaiah chapter 5 and then we took a break, and we've come back to Isaiah chapter 6. And in Isaiah chapter 6, something in the very first verse happens that then leads uh, Isaiah to see a particular vision. What's that? In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, we see that King Isaiah dies. I encourage you, if you've got a black church Bible there, to have it open as we look through this passage in Isaiah chapter 6. It's found on page 680, 680. And in verse 1, we see, In the year that King Isaiah died... I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. At the very beginning of this chapter, before Isaiah sees a vision, we note that King Isaiah dies. Now, it could be that Isaiah is just mentioning this so that you know the year that he saw the vision. But I think there is some relevance here in mentioning that it's not just during the reign of King Isaiah or at the end of his reign, but it's when he died. The Jews looked to their kings for a lot of support. God gave them kings as a blessing from him, and those kings were meant to support them by uh, helping uh, functions happen at the temple, by supporting uh, worship toward God, and of course material support and military support. The kings were there responsible for those things. And King Isaiah was a king who was actually a fairly good king. Uh, many of the kings of Judah and Israel were bad kings. 
they, they led people away from the Lord rather than to the Lord. But King Isaiah was different. He actually brought about many spiritual reforms in Israel. He encouraged people to worship God. And he also brought about a lot of material reform in, uh, in Israel as well. He encouraged uh, uh, the building of structures that would defend Israel. And so he was a good king that a lot of people looked uh, to for that support that they needed. He did, however, make one mistake in that, a very major mistake, in that he went into the temple and offered incense when he wasn't supposed to, and he actually got leprosy as a result uh, from doing it and hurried out of the temple when the priests were saying, you shouldn't be doing this, uh, and so he quickly uh, went out and he lived in seclusion uh, for the rest of his life with the leprosy. But nevertheless, he was a good king in comparison to many of the other kings in Israel. And so there's a disappointment, I'm sure, that the people of Israel felt at this time, and even Isaiah would have felt. Compared to some of the other kings that Isaiah dealt with, this was a good king. And it's a disappointment when he's gone. And so I think it's in this context of a disappointment that Isaiah then sees this vision of God that we just read from Isaiah chapter 1 uh, through Isaiah uh, chapter 6, verse 1. And it goes on for a bit, but I just want to concentrate on verses 1 to 4 today. This vision that I think is meant to be an encouragement to Isaiah and then to the people of God as they consider this disappointment that they've experienced in the loss of King Isaiah. So we see here that Isaiah has this marvellous vision of God. He doesn't just say, I saw God and left it at that. He actually describes some of what he saw. And here we see in this passage the majesty of God, how awesome God is. And that's what I want to look at today is the attributes of God that we see here in this vision. How awesome God is, how majestic he is. And so my first point this morning, they're all there on the back of the church bulletin if you want to follow along. The first is that God is king. The first thing we understand about God and how awesome he is, is that he is a king. And a king is a good thing to have. A king is a good thing to be. I've just mentioned that kings are people that uh, the Jews look to for support. And so it's right and fitting that God is a king as well. We have leaders in our country for a reason. It's good to have leaders. Good to have people who take on the responsibility of the nation, things that we probably wouldn't want to be looking after, but they stick up their hand, they volunteer to do so, and it's good to have them in power doing those things, looking after us, making sure that we have the peace and prosperity that we have and enjoy here in Australia. And so it's a good thing to note that God is a king. How do we know he's a king from this passage, from Isaiah? Well, particularly by where he's sitting. Verse 1, it says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. He's on a throne. Who sits on thrones? Do you have a throne at home that you sit on and say, This is my throne? No. Thrones are for kings. Kings sit on thrones. And so it's something that we see about God here is that he is a king by where he sits. Also, we note here that God is a king who is a king above all other kings. Is he just a king, an ordinary sort of king where there's other people who are more powerful than him? No, we get indications in this text that he's the king of kings. 
Where do we see that? Well, he's seated on a throne, but then in verse 1 it also says something about that throne. High and exalted. His throne is high. It's an exalted throne. There's no other throne that is above his throne. He is the king of kings. And we also see how how uh, mighty a king he is, how high he is, by his train, also mentioned in verse 1. It says there, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. We see how great a king God is by his train. Where do we usually see trains these days? Not trains on tracks, but trains of robes. It's usually in the context of a wedding. A bride comes in with this marvellous train behind her to show how wonderful she is, how important she is, how significant she is on that day. And you're not supposed to tread on the bride's train, are you? You're meant to make way for her. You're meant to have large aisles in the church so that she can come down and there's room made for her to show how significant she is compared to the other people on that day. You have to be very careful about how you approach the bride. Here we see God's train is a massive train. How big is it? It fills the whole temple. Imagine a bride coming to church and her train being so big that it fills the whole church. She'd be really making a statement about how wonderful she is how important she is compared to everybody else because no one could actually be there without treading upon her train and potentially offending her. You're not supposed to tread on these bridal gowns as they're so nice and bright and white. You'll be able to see the footprints very easily. And so with God, he's got this train that is so big that no one can stand in his presence. No other king can approach without treading on his train. He is the king of kings. And even these seraphs, these servants of God, do they stand in his presence? No, they can't either. What do they do? They've got wings. They fly. They have to fly in his presence, continuously working at staying afloat in the air because they cannot stand before God. His train fills the temple. God is a king. But he's a mighty king. He's the king of kings. He is the high and exalted king. Now how is this helpful for the people at this time in Isaiah? Well, the king has died, hasn't he? Isaiah's dead. Big disappointment. Big discouragement. But is the king dead? The king? King Isaiah's dead. But the king of kings, the mighty king, is alive and he is the greatest of all kings. Isaiah's not above him. No, God as king is above Isaiah and he is still reigning there. So that's my first point this morning is that God is king and that's an encouragement to us. What else do we see about God? Well, God is divine and that's my second main point. God is God. He is divine. We must not forget that our king is a divine king. How do you know from Isaiah that God is divine? Well, firstly, uh, he's, he's called the Lord, he's called God, uh-huh. and so we know that he is God from that sense, but also by where he is. Where is he? Verse 1, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. God is throned in a temple. 
Now the word in Hebrew can be used for palace as well, but I think the translators have done the right thing here. It is also used for a a religious site, and so they've translated a temple here to emphasize that God is a divine God. He's not an ordinary king. Kings don't usually assert divinity. Some do uh, through the ages, and I think there's a particular ruler um, who uh, has just uh, passed away who asserted that he was divine. Uh, but uh, there are most people don't think, if they're a king, that they are divine. Julia Gillard, our prime minister, is the leader of our nation, but she does not claim to be God. And where she lives is Kirribilli House, not Kirribilli Temple, is it? She is not divine, whereas our God is God. He is divine. So our king is not just king, not just the king above kings. He is the king who is God. And we've got to remember that when we're discouraged, when we've lost something that we hoped in, that we have a king who's not just the king above kings, but he is a king who is divine. He is God himself. So we've seen his king, we've seen his divine. What else do we see about God here? Well, thirdly, God is powerful. This is important to remember because some kings are not all that powerful. How can you tell if a king is powerful? Well, you usually look at uh, their servants and particularly their military servants. If you want to know which nations are powerful around this world, which kings have the most power, which leaders have the most power, it's by looking at their military, looking at how many soldiers they have and how well equipped are their soldiers. And we can see here in this passage how powerful our God is, particularly by looking at his servants. Who are his servants? Well, these, they're the seraphs, these seraphim that are described in verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 1. It says, Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. These seraphs here are indicators of God's power. Just as we look at leaders around the world to see how powerful they are by their servants, we now have to look at these seraphs and see whether they indicate that God is a powerful God. And the first way that we look at them is, how strong are they? And I think that's indicated by just their name itself. They're seraphs. They're flames. Literally translated burning ones. These creatures, these angels, have immense firepower. You can't touch them without getting burnt. They're burning all the time. And just as we look at leaders around this nation and look at uh, around nations of the world, we look at their soldiers and we look at how much firepower they have, In comparison to God's servants, no soldier comes close to this. No soldier is on fire all the time and so that nobody can touch him. God has immense power in these servants as burning ones. Also, how quickly do these servants move? Because we judge a nation's army, military force, by how quickly they can be deployed. If a nation has a big army but can't actually move it very quickly, well, what good will they be in a battle? And so we look at these seraphs and look at how they get around. How do they get around? Well, it's by wings. It says in verse 2, Above him, that's God, were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. 
This is an air force, not a ground force that God has here. An air force. These guys move very quickly, which shows God's power. He can deploy his army immediately. They are always flying here. We don't see them at rest. No, they are flying constantly, and they can be moved at a moment's notice. Also, with these servants, looking at God's power, it's good to look at whether they're obedient soldiers. It's all very well to have a big army, but if they're not obedient to the king, the army is kind of useless. And you see this with military coups that happen. Uh, Someone's in charge, but then suddenly the general is in charge with the army, and they take over the government. It's very important to have a powerful army, a quick army, but also an obedient army. And do we have any indication in the text that these are obedient seraphs? Yes, I think there is. Uh, some commentators point this out, particularly by the way that they cover their feet. Uh, so in verse 2 it says, Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet. Now why would they waste two wings covering their feet? Well, some commentators think that it's because they want to show that they're completely obedient to God. Their their direction is not governed by them. They don't use their feet to, uh, to go in a particular way, that they are dependent upon God and his orders. When he says go somewhere, their feet are not their own. They're God's feet. And so they go where God sends them. Now, that may be a bit of a stretch, but it's an interesting interpretation there nonetheless. And if it does indicate that, well, we do indeed have obedient uh, armies of God here in heaven. Then another way that we can tell whether God's servants are powerful, uh, whether God is powerful, whether as king is a powerful God, uh, is by the way that they communicate. Communication is very important for a king, particularly with his army. If the king cannot communicate with his army then how does the army know what to do? And if the army can't communicate itself, then how does it uh, communicate to one another? Do these seraphs communicate? Yes, they do. Verse 3 we see, And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And how well are they proclaiming this? How well are they communicating? Verse 4, At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Are these timid little seraphs without much volume? They may look powerful, but then their voice comes out with a little squeak. No. When they speak, the temple trembles, the doorposts shake. It's kind of uh, like planes in Dremoyne coming down low and our window panes rattle for a few minutes afterwards. The volume is very, very loud, so loud that the temple and the doors shake. So these servants communicate very well. When they want to get a message across, it comes across, indicating God's power. And then lastly, we should look at God's servants and how many they are. Because it's all well and good to have an army, to have some fairly powerful, beefed-up blokes in your army who can move quickly and are obedient. But if they're the only ones, if you've only got a couple, you're not going to get very far. Does God have many, many servants, many, many powerful servants? 
Well, we're not quite told how many seraphs are here in the text. It just gives us the plural there. So it could be two. It's got to be at least two. It can't be one. But it could be many. We're not actually told. But there is an indication in the text that God has many, many servants. And it's hidden in our NIV translation, unfortunately. And it's the word that is translated almighty in the NIV. It's there in verse 3. It says, And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Now the NIV has consistently uh, translated the name for God where it says the Lord of armies with the Lord Almighty. So whenever you see that in the Old Testament, the Lord Almighty, it's actually a translation of the word armies. The Lord of armies, of hosts, is an older translation. He has armies, plural. He is a God who has many, many, many angels serving him. And so God is a powerful God. He has servants who are strong, who are quick, who are obedient, who communicate very effectively, and there's many of them. Our God is a powerful God. And this is an encouragement to Isaiah as he's had this disappointment that King Isaiah is dead. But now he's seen that God is a king, God is God, but he's also a God of great power. He's a God who has many powerful servants working for him. Fourthly, what else do we see about God? God is holy. Firstly, before we look at whether there's an indication of that in the text, what is holiness? What does it mean to be holy? Well, holy is a word that is used for basically separateness, separateness, to be separated from something. So we consecrate something, we call something holy if it is set apart from other things. And so when God is holy, it means he is set apart from us and from all things. He is different. He is holy. He is different from us. Particularly, how is he holy? Well, one of the things that we often associate with God's holiness is his moral holiness. How he is separated from us in his morality. Now, we as humans, we're not as immoral as we could be. God, by his grace, keeps us from being as sinful as we have the potential to be. But we are not as moral as we'd like to think we are. We are sinful, evil people. But when we look at God... He is holiness. He is different from us in morality. He is always moral. In fact, he defines morality. He is the sinless one. He is complete righteousness. Now, is God holy? Is that indicated in the text? Well, yes, particularly where we see it stated by these seraphs. Verse 3. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. They say it three times. Why would they say it three times? To emphasize how holy he is, how pure he is in his holiness. Sometimes in Hebrew, when they want to emphasize that something is pure, they say it twice. So there's an instance in uh, Second Kings where gold is spoken of and it said it is gold gold which means the gold is gold gold it's pure gold and so they say it twice to emphasize that it's a pure thing 
And that's what's going on here. They're saying God is holy, but then his holiness is holy, holy. But then they don't stop with twice. They actually do something really unusual and say it three times. So they're saying God is holy, but then his holy is holy, holy. And then that holy, holy is holy. He is so holy that no one comes close to him. He is so different, so separate from us. He is the holy God. And we see other clues that he is holy in this text as well, that he is different from us. How do we see that? Well, it's by the fact that he can't be looked at, that you can't see him. How do we know that people are separate from us, very different from us in this life? In our world, celebrities particularly, you don't get to see them. You might see them on video cameras and on your TV. You might hear them. But you rarely get to see celebrities and you rarely get to see important kings. You might see the queen from a distance, but it's very rare that you would be able to go and shake her hand and to look at her and get a good look at her. And it's the same with God. You can't see him. And there's a few indications of that in the text. Although Isaiah does see him, it says that in verse 1, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. Uh, quite what he saw um, is up for debate. Uh, God coming in some sort of form, or whether it was Jesus that is there. But even then, he doesn't describe what God looks like. In fact, he just describes the things around God. He describes what God is sitting on. He describes God's house, that it's a temple. He describes what God is wearing. He doesn't describe what God looks like because God is so different from us that he can't be looked at. The other indication that he can't be looked at is by what the seraphs are doing. Remember, they've got six wings. Two they're covering their feet, two they're flying with. What are they doing with the other two? Verse 2. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. These are holy beings there in heaven, burning ones, yet they can't look at God either. And then we see another indication that you can't look at God by the fact that he is high and exalted. When you want to keep something out of someone's view, what do you do with it? You lift it up, you exalt it. I do this with Joshua. When I want to hide something from him, I put it high up where he can't see it, where there's an angle that he has to either stretch his neck back to see that something is there, particularly confectionery things. Um, we put them high and exalted so we can't see them. God is high and exalted. We can't look at him without straining our necks to try and get a glimpse of him. And then another indication that God is separate from us and we can't look at him is what fills the temple. What's there in verse 4? It says, At the sound of their voices the doorposts and threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Smoke is something you just can't see through. Makes things hazy at best. We can't get a proper glimpse of God because he is so holy that we can't look at him. Smoke fills and clouds our vision of him. So God here is a holy God as well. And we need to remember that. When we're discouraged about something, we need to remember that God is king, God is God, God is powerful, but he's also a holy God. Isn't that a wonderful truth to remember? Because what good would it be if there was a God who was all-powerful but an evil God, who was unholy, unrighteous? But if he is holy, 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 
then you're safe. He's always going to do the right thing. Justice will be served. And you can trust in him. And then fifthly, we also see that God is glorious. What is God's glory? Well, glory means reputation, honour. So the worthiness that God has as God. And we see that he is indeed a glorious God. As we've looked at those attributes, you can see quite clearly that he is a God who deserves honour, deserves glory. But then, just in case we've missed that, the seraphs tell us in verse 3, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth shows that he is a God who deserves honour. And we see that in the creation around us. We see God's goodness displayed again and again. If we will just open our eyes and have a look at it, how glorious God is. But we also see God's glory in creation in this world, particularly through the cross, that God himself entered into this world and displayed his glory at the cross. For at the cross where Jesus is hanging there crucified, we see all the attributes of God displayed. We see God's holiness there, that he makes sure that if people get into heaven, it must be because of justice. It must be because sin is taken and a sacrifice is made. We see God's love there, that he would send his son. We see God's mercy and graciousness there. We see God's goodness there at the cross. We see the attributes of God there at the cross and that shows his glory here on earth. And so if you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you this morning. Consider who God is and particularly who God is at the cross. There's a marvellous vision here in Isaiah of who God is. But there's a glorious vision of who God is on this earth contained in the pages of the New Testament as Jesus Christ is revealed there. How merciful God is to sinners, to unholy creatures. Unholy, unholy, unholy are we. But there at the cross we see God's holy, holy, holiness. And that is where he takes our sin for us. And I encourage you this morning, look to Christ. Repent of your unholiness and ask for his forgiveness and his holiness to be put upon you. But if you are a Christian, I want to encourage you, as we look at these attributes, see how marvellous God is. God is the King of kings. He is divine. He is powerful. He is a holy God and he is a glorious God. This vision should drive away disappointments and discouragements that you have. It is terrible that we as Christians still are discouraged. We still have troubles and hopes that are spoiled. But when we have such things, we need to look at a vision like we see here that Isaiah has preserved for us in this text. I want you just to consider this morning one unfulfilled hope that you have, one person that you were depending upon, whether it be a family member, father, mother, sister, brother, husband, wife, son, daughter, someone that you were depending upon and has been removed, or maybe material thing, maybe money, 
a hope lost. And now I want you to take that hope that is lost, that discouragement you feel, and consider God in light of that. Yes, you may have lost something that is very, very valuable. God gives us many good things that we can trust in in this life. And you may have lost it, but God is still there. You have not lost him. And who is that one that you have not lost? He is the king. He is the king of kings. He is God. He is a God of power. He is a God of holiness. He is a God who is so glorious, all the earth is filled with his glory. So when you're disappointed, discouraged, even maybe now, by hope lost, by something good that has been lost, just like Isaiah lost King Isaiah, look to this vision of God. I encourage you this morning, look at God in all his splendour and there is no other place you need to go for encouragement if your God is the God that is described here in Isaiah. Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of Isaiah and what they reveal to us about you, that you are king and king of kings, that you are God, that you are holy, that you are powerful, and that you are glorious. Lord, we recognise that there are so many things that we hope for in this life and are discouraged when they are taken away from us. But Lord, it is so wonderful to know that you are never taken away from us. If we accept you as our Father through repentance and faith in Jesus' death, you are always with us as the God that is described here in Isaiah. Lord, we pray that when we are discouraged, we may reflect upon who you are and find there the encouragement that we need to continue serving you with great joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.